Hello, everybody. Dr. Lonnie Stewart here from the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. Are you a physical therapy student about to start studying for the National Physical Therapy Examination? Or maybe you're a professor, a program director, or a clinical instructor who teaches DPT students preparing for the NPTE? Either way, we would recommend checking out our sponsor, NPTE Final Frontier, and the community they've built around preparing for and succeeding on the NPTE. That exam and the preparation that goes along with it can be long, tedious, difficult, and stress-inducing, but it doesn't have to be. NPTE Final Frontier has the tactics and resources to help address all of the usual barriers. They even have scholarships to help with NPTE study courses, FSBPT registration fees, and even research opportunities. And if that's not enough, they're even donating to the very first annual HET Podcast Scholarship to be awarded at the end of every year. Go to NPTEFF.com for all of the details and use code HET for 10% off all purchases. Links to both the NPTE Final Frontier and their scholarship options are available in the show notes. And now, let's get ready to learn. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. F. Scott Field, uh, and I've got with me today distinguished guest, Dr. Cam McDonald. Uh, Cameron just came off winning the Carlton Bourne Award, the Teach I Must Award that's given out um, through AOMPT. Cam, tell us a little bit about that award. Like, what what is that? How how does that you know come to be, and what is what does that mean to you? Well, Carlton Bourne Award is uh, named named in the honor of Freddie Carlton Bourne, a very influential person with regards to teaching hands on manual therapies. Freddie was originally out of Norway, but he really trained in Germany. 1944, 46, and then for the next 25 years, by the end of a very long, extensive program of study and education, Freddie became a, started as a physiotherapist, became a chiropractor, became an osteopath, became an orthopedic medicine practitioner. Pretty much the only person I know of who did everything. Yeah. And he influenced greatly uh, many individuals who would go on to formulate the academy over time. He worked with Jeff Maitland and David Lamb and Grieve and many others uh, in the formations around IFOMT. But basically, the name sort of sums it up, Teach I Must. It was, Freddie was constantly teaching. You see some speaking to individuals such as Stanley Paris, the influence he had around them was somewhat never-ending. He always had a good, strong opinion. He wanted to make sure there was a high skill in what hands-on manual providers did. But it just seemed that no matter what happened, he just had to keep he had to keep teaching. It was something he must do. To me, it's recognition of making an impact for individuals in a way that almost was grand it's almost almost like a granular that you you must teach when you have knowledge versus just hold it to yourself. You must provide information available for the benefit of others who can then benefit the next person versus just use it to build up your own acumen or repertoire. Yeah, I love that. Um, and, you know, it's been a while since you, you've been on the show. So uh, refresh our audience's memory here. Tell us a little bit about your educational journey and how it's led you to where you're at today. I was trained in Australia in the early 90s. Then I came to the United States to do a little bit of work as a traveling clinician to some extent. Uh, did that for quite a few years, more recreation than work quite often. But I think that's an interesting path something that I might share. Chad Cook and I talked about that a little bit too, about sometimes you've got to experience the world a bit to realize your passion actually is in your profession and you want to get back in and learn more. 
So around about 2000, I extended my education to pick up the transitional doctorate. And then I went into fellowship training under the mentorship of Tim Flynn, Julie Whitman and others. That was my path to, to Colorado from after leaving out of, out of Michigan and, and became involved in the academy at that point and started to see the value of also branching off into some research, other clinical specializations. Now I'm an associate professor at the university in Denver at Regis and I direct the, the fellowship in OMPT and the residency programs in orthopedics, just gradually becoming more academic, but at the yeah. same time, try not to lose those, the roots of curiosity, which I think enable me to be effective as a teacher versus uh, lacking an engagement or meaning for those who are really uh, paying my way by being students in the organizations I'm part of. Yeah. I love that. Let's dive into that a little bit. So, curiosity is one of the things that I, I've found helps me learn more, right? If I stay curious, that helps me stay on that path of trying to be a lifelong learner, right? How do you feel curiosity has helped formulate and shape your teaching style and your teaching skills now with, with where you're at? Curiosity really can't be present if you, I would, I'd hope for what I'm going to say to follow. If you don't have humility, uh, if you do, if you don't have, if the, if the hubris balance is not correct, such that you believe what you're saying is accurate, factual, and not to be challenged, you're not going to be curious to see what comes next. You might be curious to see who else you can influence, but not to change your own perspective. Uh, you, if you're going to be a good educator, you need to be cognizant that you're really only working with the balance of information in your favor, but not every piece of information in your favor. Something might always come up that, that needs to change your perspective you need to adapt to. And you want to be curious about it. Otherwise, you'll be defensive and you will actively seek to not learn more to be to so you're comfortable in the knowledge that you profess to have. Some of your best teachers become the students around you who have active minds that are curious as well. And so curiosity, if lost, I think a teacher, an educator loses their ability to connect, loses their ability to reflect and to progress within their own on their own academic dogma. It becomes dogma, really, instead of having a teaching philosophy that is bounded in humility and bounded in curiosity. I love that. That that really brings back, I mean, I'm, I'm only four years into teaching now, right? And so I think that Dunning-Kruger effect kind of comes in where it's like, oh, I got this. I've been practicing for 17, 18 years. I know my stuff. And then you go in and you realize, oh, teaching it is a total different art form and I need to figure this out. I have the knowledge, but I, I, I need to make sure I know how to transfer the knowledge and make sure it sticks, you know? So I go back down to like, oh, I don't really know that much. And I have to learn how to become a better teacher again, uh, which has spiked my curiosity and kept me motivated to, to get better and to learn more, right? And to see what comes next. Um, you teach a lot, especially with manual therapy and, and hands-on stuff. How does that kind of come into play with, you know, your teaching methods and, and your, you know, modes that you use to teach when, when you're doing manual therapy versus, let's say, lecture stuff? Well, you need to find a way to be in the place of the learner. And we have different types of learners in a room. There are some who are auditory, some are kinesthetic, some are visual. But really, the only way to see if you're helping an individual progress is to ask them what it is they're experiencing. What are they hearing? How, what does it mean to them? And to provide an area within which someone can learn whether it's okay to fail, it's okay to stumble. So, and knowing that for hands-on techniques, 
there are some fundamental principles that we try to work from. But the best way for an individual to perform a technique is dependent upon their own cognition, their own way of processing, their own body type structure, their own style with regards to how they utilize their own body and how they work with other people. It needs to be clear to sort of frame for someone, well, the desired outcome is this, this, you need to achieve X, but how you get there is going to be determined upon you understanding your own way of moving, your own way of functioning and interacting with people. Instead of you need to execute a task in these specific steps, uh, that predisposes that there is a perfect way to do something and there isn't when it comes to hands-on therapies. So it's more like, okay, we need to achieve an outcome that has meaning to the individual in this space. And you need to be able to measure and determine if that outcome occurred. And let's see, let, let's give you a space, the freedom to practice and see if, how you would best go about that and refine your performance, your psychomotor skills based upon your own intentional practice. It's a quite a high demand on the, the educator, actually, because you need yeah. to be able to hold multiple different ways to, say, go about mobilizing the tibial femoral joint. You need to be able to adapt your instruction to the body mechanics of the individual, to the, the habitus of the person they're working on and the context of the learning environment. The student needs to know that they're, that you are open and willing to receive their input on how they feel they're performing so that they can have a contextual understanding of their own performance that has meaning to them and that you give it veracity so that they can utilize their own words to shape their own learning as well. It's a learning environment versus an instruction segment. The last little piece I'd offer is there's a true art in it as well. Some people are not as kin to the hands-on performance as others. They might have much stronger clinical reasoning. They're much stronger uh, in communication skills. But some people talk better with their hands, and that is okay. And so you want to provide all, all DPT students, as, as an example, the opportunity to try and hone their hands-on skills to understand where they are, and also to work out if they can listen with their hands. And can they feel textures in the human body or joint tissues and structures? Or maybe they'll come to realize that's not their best path in the PT profession for them. And that's okay. But if it doesn't work for them, doesn't mean they should minimize the opportunity for it to work for others. And that's how you end up with acrimonious teaching, teaching situations around manual therapy instead of beneficial ways that allow individuals in a group to work out, this is a path for me and others to go, not so much. I'm going to be focused elsewhere. Yeah. I love that take on it. And and like you said, it's, it's really an environment, you know, you're bringing them into a, a learning environment and then being able to adapt, you know, and, and change based on it's the simple things, even like bio, bio body mechanics of certain students and, and, you know, different, uh, you know, ways that they are in touch with their body and their hands and stuff too. So that, that becomes definitely a, an interesting take to think about when considering hands-on therapy and teaching. What, what are some of the characteristics that you would say uh, some of your best teachers, professors, and mentors have had that really made an impact on you that you try to carry forward now in teaching? You would see them, they, we've talked about the curiosity, but you'd see it happen in real time. There might be 20 students in a room trying to work on some thoracic cage interventions, and they won't focus on the individual who's getting it the quickest and maybe has the quickest execution, what you would say the most classic performance, but they might 
identify a student who's having a different body structure, different learning style, and bring them forward to demonstrate to the class alternate ways to go about that gives more meaning for the whole group. And it shows that the educator is just not driven to have everyone in the room agree with them and perform like them. And that's the humility piece. We're creating a place of learning so that all of us can gain more, including me as instructor. But on the flip of that, they're also honest with their critique. They will pull an individual out who might be, might say, you might say is being sloppy or being rushed or overly forceful uh, or take someone who has chosen early agency and a strong performance and then try to refine them right there and then to a more difficult presentation so that the abstract concepts that students might hear, it might take 10,000 hours to get good at this, starts to be a little bit clearer because it's like, no, you can be relatively good at this okay, but you won't find your optimal best for up to 10,000 hours. So the metacognitions of adaptive mastery that many people might talk about. It's the golf analogy. Oh, you can hit the ball on the green from 10, yard, from 10 yards away. No, but the goal is actually be closer to the hole, not just on the green. And so you kind of have to keep refining that and keep refining it. So when you see that in instructors, that they're trying to find the best performance of the individual in front of them, and at the same time, they're allowing the individual to learn with some failure, with some success, and uh, you'll start to see individuals who you'll be confident that uh, will have a purposeful impact on a person versus a judgmental impact. And now for a quick shout out to our newest sponsor, Varela Financial. If you're a physical therapist and you have student loan debt, you got to talk to these guys. What makes them unique is that they view financial planning like running hurdles on a track. And for PTs, the first hurdle many of us run into is student loan debt. Varela Financial will help you get over that hurdle. They not only take the time to explain to you which plans you individually qualify for and how those plans work, but they also take the time to show you what your individual case looks like mapped out within each option. So if you're looking for help on your student loan debt or any area of personal finances, we recommend working with them. I use Varela Financial personally, and they were able to help me lower my student loan repayment from about $1,800 a month down to about $135 per month simply by finding the right repayment plan that best fit me, my family, and our life goals. You can check them out at varelafinancial.com. Link is in the show notes if you need it for reference and tell them the HET podcast crew sent you. And now back to the show. Yeah, that's that's a, a deep take right there too, because I, I know, you know, for me, again, still kind of early on in my career, I'm starting to see the pattern recognition of finding those students that may may struggle a little bit or do things a different way. Um, and so being able to pull them out and even bring them up to the front and spotlight them to say, hey, look, this is a different way to do it, right? This is this is okay too. Not only does that instill trust in the student and build up their confidence a little bit, but also, you know, it gives that that creation of that safe space, right? So that the, all the students see that they can learn and fail and then, you know, still find a, a different way to get to that X point that you were talking about, you know? Um, and and I do like the fact too, that you said, you know, they'll call people out too, you know, they'll, they'll say, Hey, you know, you're better than this. Like, that's a little sloppy. Let's tighten it up and, and do it the right way. Right. You know? So I think that that, that can be very meaningful and, and powerful too. It seems like it, it's a, a very tough art form to be able to know when to lean in and flow in and flow out of those things too. Um, so, it, cause yeah, 
a lot of words are used there, but if we if we wanted to simplify it down, I would say it's much preferred from my perspective to find the educator who seeks the best intention from yeah. the student yeah. versus the best outcome. If we if we make our metric that the outcome of the student versus the intention, then we ignore all the, in, the other variables that could be creating that. The classmate who's, who's really who's not engaging with them as their patient demonstrator or other factors that might be going on in that space and time. But no, if the question becomes, what, what is it that you're seeking to achieve? And the student's answer would be something which we might frequently hear would be, well, I'm just struggling with this. I'm trying really hard. I can't quite get my head wrapped around it. They're all really good statements versus, oh, we're just trying to go through and get this done because we've got to get to neuro. Not such a great statement. Nothing wrong with neuro. But it tells you that the intention is not of learning. The intention is not of curiosity about their own performance. It's a checkbook mentality. Yeah. So the strong instructor, educator, is trying to create the best intention for students in the room and to know that for these students, that their intention matters. So at the start, framing a classroom so that those know that in this space, it's almost like guidelines of behavior, I don't want to say rules of behavior, but guidelines of behavior versus required outcome. And it's okay if you don't get through all the material today, because if the reason for that is because we get deeper learning, more metacognition occurring, then we're succeeding beyond the structure. And if you get through everything, well, we can add a little bit more bonus at the end. Because who is the audience? Who is the client? It's the student. It's not the teacher. Yeah. One of the things that I've picked up uh, recently uh, has been that I need to remind myself a lot of times that I've been doing it for 16, 17 years, right? And every time I have a new cohort of students come through, this is a, their first time, right? So there's that like knowledge gap that exists, What you know, whether they've had some experience or none. I know way, way more than they do just because I've done it time and time again, right? I've, I've learned that there's a knowledge gap there. They're starting at point A. By the end of the semester, I'd like to get them to point B. And, and I think intention is a big thing, you know, for me as well. Like I want to teach with intention because I want to get them from point A to point B and have that transformation occur. One of the things that I've actively been working on is really leaning into the fact that I know Every semester when I start over, it's a fresh group and I have to acknowledge that that gap in learning, right? And from that gap, by telling them, hey, if you practice with intention, you can kind of compress the timeline a little bit. It doesn't have to be 10,000 hours as long as you're practicing with intention, you know? And and my goal is to teach with intention to get you to that point, right? To to get that transformation. What are some like tips or 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 pieces of advice that you would give to somebody who's maybe just starting out in the world of academia, just getting their feet wet in teaching, um, you know, and, and, you know, helpful hints or, or things that you can go back and remember from when you first started to where you're at now as a more skilled academician versus, you know, that knowledge gap that existed when you just started. Well, it's a piece of advice I often give to people who first present or first lecture. Uh, there are very few people in the room, even in, some of the strange dynamics of the modern world we live in. But there are very few people in a room typically who want you to fail. The students in a room, the majority, have committed to their professional education and they've given you the grace and they've accepted that you have knowledge to provide. So you don't have to prove it all every day 
sort of goes back to the old statement. It's better to have people, it's better to stay silent and keep people ignorant to your idiosity than to yeah. prove it out loud. Uh, so I see that in the young educators that might struggle a little bit. They feel they have to put it out there to prove their place. Just accept that the majority of students give you that place. They have the grace of an allowance. Most people are decent people. And therefore, you don't take all the oxygen out of the room then. Know that some of your best teaching will come from the questions asked. And if one student, another one is like, if there's a couple students to ask all the questions, that's okay. Because when one student asks, there's probably another 10, 20 who have the same question who are just happy to have someone else ask it for them. And so speak to the group in response, but not to the individual. So that way, then you don't get these power struggles and battles within a classroom either. If student Y is always asking, and if you only answer to them, that's almost a, you having to prove yourself to that individual maybe. Instead, you reflect that questions that you get asked to the learning of the whole group. And you use, so you're using whatever dialogue is created to benefit as many as you can. So again, you're not trying to prove, you're trying to benefit. So you welcome that. One of the surest signs I've seen of what I might consider to be insecurity of the knowledge of a presenter is to make statements like, hold your questions to the end. I mean, if I'm in the audience and I hear that one, it's like, okay, you're trying so hard to just read from the script. You don't right. want to be interrupted. Yeah. It's like, no, because then the statement then is what we're presenting is more important than what you might be thinking. It's a servant attitude type role you need to take on to be a, success, to be a successful instructor. And obviously you don't want bedlam and chaos, but it shows that you're able to be flexible and adapt as the educator as well. There's some of the things I'd offer. I love that. I love that. That actually puts me at a great amount of relief because uh, I, I know I don't know everything all the time, right? I was an English major before I became a physical therapist. So I, I had a lot of learning to do to get up to speed. Um, and so I left my ego at the door a long time ago, you know, and I just said, I'm going to go into every opportunity I can as a learning opportunity and just try to make the, the most of it and learn as much as I can and lean on whoever's willing and able to help me learn those things, you know, and that's been very helpful for me, uh, throughout my journey. Cam, I just can't thank you enough for taking the time and for coming on to, to kind of educate our audience on, on all things, uh, higher education, uh, we do have one question we ask all of our guests, and that question is, if you could change one aspect of higher education, whether it be DPT or otherwise, what aspect would you change and how would you change it? Don't be so serious about yourself. I, mean, <laughs> yeah, I like, love it. I, I, I walk the hallways at the university and I say it like random acts of silliness, uh, but it's a bit of humor. Yeah. Uh, I would ask that individuals allow people to find their own passions within our profession and their academic teaching and their in whatever their research agenda is and to be very true to that, but to recognize that they don't need to share the passions of everyone else. Because if we're all passionate about everything, then we don't really care about anything either. And we have way too many hot button issues when we do that instead of areas of considered deep interest for, me, for some, but not all. We get this. Uh, we get this in. We understand this through our professional practice. We have those who have a pediatric, geriatric, neuro, oncology, sports, manual, whatever, across the spectrum. We're fine with that, but yet we try to ask in academia that the students care about every subject. They shouldn't. 
sorry, you're going to have students in your classroom who don't really care much about what you're teaching, but they're respecting the profession to understand those nuances so they can support their peers in the future who work in that area, who function in that space. But we will allow individuals to excel if we're not trying to pull everyone down to our shared level of concern. And that's a struggle for academicians because it's like, oh, some of the students don't seem to care about this subject. And they might find it strange if I say, well, they shouldn't. Yeah. Not everyone's going to find you interesting. And that's wonderful. That's the human condition. That's why you have 32 NFL teams, not one. Sorry, Cowboys, you're not just the only America's team. And I'm a (laughs) foreigner and I can see this. And uh, in education, that's the humility piece that we constantly need. But we need to be putting that. But to help the students see it, I think one of the ways to do it is like you're going to select where you want to practice in this profession across our broad scope. You're going to select decide if you care about advocacy research, if you care about literature review, if you care about clinic practice management, because where you find your passions, you, you'll you find your curiosity and you won't burn out. But the more that we keep demanding that the students care about everything we teach, the more of them we burn out of the profession because the profession becomes too intense for them versus fun. And so then we lose those ability to have those sudden conversations with the student that says, I'm really interested in this little piece here and I've gone down a rabbit hole. Well, great. What'd you find? Instead of, no, I need to bring you back and have you like try and absorb everything in the whole curriculum perspective. And that's how we tend to burn out these uh, early career professionals, but not allowing them to have selective passions and making them feel guilty about caring about certain things that maybe we should just let them not worry about. Well, and that's the cool thing about physical therapy is there is so many different avenues they can go down. And there's, you know, Definitely, if you get burned out or don't enjoy one, you can go to another, you know, and so I think, you know, it's starting out as learning the basics and being a pretty good generalist. And then more and more you learn about things, you start to lean into your specialty or your area of interest, your zone of genius, if you will, like that, that to me makes the most sense. So I I love that take on it. Um, Well, Dr. Cameron McDonald, always a pleasure to have you on here. We appreciate you so much for taking the time. Uh, where can people reach out to you if they have f- further questions or follow up for you? Well, I'm actually a bit of a, I'm a little under the radar these days because I'm doing a lot of bit of research work, yeah. but I'm at the, I'm at the Regis university. Like I can be found there though. I'm on sabbatical right now. So even, even better I, reason to appreciate you for coming on. Thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, yeah. Social media person much anymore. Like I appreciate yeah. the invite you out, but, uh, if, if people find this stuff interesting, I'll just say, well, look a little bit more into why you might find it interesting and have a conversation with a colleague on a similar topic or listen to more of the healthcare educator podcasts and find your way to keep sort of filling that tank of your own curiosity. And I think that's what, that's where we win. Awesome. And awesome. That's where we win. Well, thank you again so much. Like I said, absolute pleasure. Thank you for having the discussion with us and, and enlightening our audience. And I, I, I'm sure they took st- something away from it because I know I did. So appreciate your time and thank you for coming on. Thank you, Scott. Well, I hope that episode was entertaining as much as it was informational and educational. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our past episodes, we ask you to please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. And please share out the episodes to those who you feel may be able to benefit from them. We also urge you to follow us on all social media platforms at HET Podcast and let us know what topics or experts you would like to hear from in future episodes. And just as a reminder, none of the information on today's show should be considered medical advice. 
It's simply infotainment or edutainment to help educate our audience. For medical advice, we always advise you to reach out to your preferred medical professionals, and we'll see you on the next show.